Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 1. This is speaking about Jesus. It said, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom with which, uh, what is this wisdom, excuse me, and what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And not are his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So here already in this gospel account, we we understand that Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. How many? We're not sure. The brothers are named here. We turn to John chapter 7, verse 2. It says, Now the Jews feast... uh, of tabernacles was at hand his brothers therefore said to him depart from here and go into judea that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly if you do these things show yourself to the world for even his brothers did not believe in him so here jesus is the oldest uh, child obviously of mary and joseph and uh and then he's got these brothers, younger brothers and younger sisters, and they didn't believe he was the Messiah until uh, they saw him in his resurrected state. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, after Jesus had uh, resurrected and he was in heaven, or excuse me, ascended into heaven, and the, the disciples were gathered. It says there in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So contrary to what uh, the Catholic Church teaches, um, Mary had other children, Mary and Joseph, and so Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. Well, one of those brothers was named Judas. That's his actual name, but they changed, the translators changed his name to Jude, um, and basically it was to avoid confusion with Judas Iscariot. Uh, You know, that name was kind of ruined, right? I mean, I don't know any kids named Judas nowadays, but... um, it's funny, I have a, a, my son-in-law's name is Judah, and my dad, um, he's Dutch, he's, he's, he's gone to heaven now, but they don't, they don't say the J, it's always Y, and uh, that, that's the Y sound of the J, and so whenever he'd see my, my uh, son-in-law Judah, he'd go, hey, Judas, how you doing? <laughs> my son-in-law would be, man, I'm, it's Judah, it's Judah, it's not Judas. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I used to always get a kick out of that. Hey, um, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Jude. We're going to look at Jude's epistle. So now we, un- we understand who Jude is. He was, the, he was the brother of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 1 of chapter of one, chapter 1 of Jude, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God, the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. One of the things that jumps out right away is uh, Jude's humility. He calls himself the brother of James. And he could have said, you know, he could have been dropping names. He could have said, hey, I'm the half-brother. Or better yet, he could say, I'm the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to go, whoa, we've got to listen to this guy. But he doesn't. He just says, I'm the brother of James and a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So we just see the humility of Jude. Um, Jude wrote 
this epistle, and this epistle is the epistle that needed to be written. And we'll explain that in a few moments. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ." So why was it necessary to write this epistle? He says it there, because certain men had crept in unnoticed. The word there, crept in, it's, it's as if they slipped in through a side door. It's like they, they didn't come in through the front door. They slipped in and there they are. And it reminds me of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember that parable? It's in Matthew 13. If you're taking notes, verses 24 through 30. That's the parable where, where the, the enemy at night sowed weeds and tares among the wheat. And, and, the, and in the morning or in, later on, they saw these weeds. And, and, and they're like, Master, what do we do about these? Do we have to go through? And he goes, no, leave them. Leave them at, at the harvest time. We'll sort them, basically. I mean, I'm paraphrasing heavily. But that's basically these guys. You know, they've slipped into the church. And Jude says they were long ago marked out for this condemnation. In other words, they were prophesied. Scripture foretold that there would be men. Um, there would be false teachers. And so as Jude, you know, he's getting ready to write this epistle. It would have been interesting to have read it if he had read it you know, regarding our common salvation. I'm like, I wonder what he would have wrote. But because of these false teachers that had already crept into the church at the time, he felt necessary to write this epistle. Necessity dictated that he change the theme. And the theme or the subject of this epistle is contending for the faith. I don't know if you recognize this lighthouse. Um, I didn't at first because... I was in the Coast Guard, and this is actually Rock of Ages Lighthouse. It's just on the other side, the south side of Isle Royal in the Lake Superior. And uh, when I used to work on it, because I used to work on lighthouses, that thing was bright white, and uh, it looked like black, bright white and black, and it looked like a champion spark plug just sitting out there in the middle of the lake. In fact, that's what we used to call it, the champion spark plug. But I guess the Coast Guard doesn't run it anymore or whatever, and it's, it's gotten all... It's all, we used to sandblast it and paint it, and it looked really nice, and now it looks pretty, pretty cruddy. But anyways, this epistle is like that lighthouse. It's an alarm bell. It's a warning of imminent danger. Why? It's because there's a hidden reef. Now, you can see a little rock there, but actually this is a view from the air of that same lighthouse. And if you're a ship... And you're traveling through, you know, some lighthouses point the way to like a harbor, you know, where a harbor is, you know, where a channel is. This one is basically to warn you, hey, steer, steer clear of here because there's rocks underneath there. And there are shipwrecks actually around that, around that area there by that lighthouse. And that's really what this epistle is. Jude's writing, it's like steer, steer clear. There's these things you need to know about. Beware. That's what the subject is. And if the subject of this epistle is contending for the faith, you might think, well, it must be written for pastors of churches or, or the theologians, you know, the great theologians. They, they need to understand this stuff. But who is it written to? It says it's written to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. 
That's all of us. That's believers. That's not just pastors or theologians. It's each of us. Because you need to contend earnestly for the faith. So this epistle applies to you. Why? Because the enemy wants to corrupt your and my faith. So you need to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Make note of that. It was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, there's no new gospel. There's no new revelation of Jesus Christ. There you go. (laughs) There's no new revelation. There is no another testament of Jesus Christ. There's no new understanding of of old doctrine. The, the, The faith was once for all delivered. And these certain men, Jude says, they turn the grace of our God into lewdness. What does that mean, lewdness? It means unbridled lust, licentiousness, anything goes. See, these aren't the legalistic Judaizers that that Paul was warning against in his epistle to the Galatians. These are antimoniums. I'm like, what is an antimonium? Antimoniism relates to the view that Christians are released by grace from the obligation of observing the moral law. So basically, it's, it's, it's cheap grace, I guess is, a, is an easy way to say it, but God's grace and Christian's liberty is an excuse for sensualism. In other words, whatever pleases self, if it feels good, do it. That's what, they, that's what these people are. Jude says they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but uh, this... October 31st, which is, we, you know, in the U.S. we celebrate Halloween. Well, we don't celebrate, but, you know, it, Halloween is that day. But also, 500 years ago, on that very day, October 31st, 1517, is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the, jo- on the church door there at, uh, in Wittenberg. And uh, that was basically kind of, although there were, there were some other people that did things before him, but that's kind of where people basically say that's when the Reformation started, was back then, 500 years ago today, or not today, but on the 31st. And uh, the basis for the Reformation, there's these, these solas. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but there's, four, there's five solas, and we're going to look at four of them right now. The first sola is sola scriptura. This is the basis of the Reformation, Reformation. scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority, and it should be our highest authority. Um, some people base their their faith or what they their doctrines on experiences. I remember years ago there was someone that that came up to me, and I, and I don't doubt her being a born again believer or anything. I don't doubt her relationship with the Lord, but she came to me once and she said, "Hey, do you believe in demon possession?" And I said, "Well, you know." I don't really see it in scriptures. I, I, I don't see a basis for it in scriptures. And she says, well, I do because I've witnessed it. So yeah, it was based on experience. We can't base our faith on experience. Um, I had another individual who uh, they, they, were, they, they believed in, uh, in, in the uh, holy laughter, which, I, I, again, that's another thing. I just don't see it in scripture. And uh, so I was sharing that with this individual and uh, they, they, I said, you know, I don't see it in scripture. And he quoted this verse to me. It's in John 21 verse 25 says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so he said, you know, yeah, we don't see it in scripture, but it could be that Jesus talked about it, just not recorded in the Bible. 
And I'm like, well, boy, you know, you could pretty much fit anything <laughs> into that then. You know, Jesus, you know, condoned serial murder because, you know, he, maybe he talked about it there. The, you know, it's not written, you know. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous in my opinion. And so, you know, we don't base our faith on anything but scriptures. Scriptures alone. We don't need other books. We don't need other philosophy. Now, other books are good. I mean, I've got a library full of books. Most of them I haven't read because I, I, read, I read about two pages and I fall asleep. So it takes, it'll probably take me a lifetime to get through a few of them. Anyways, I do read some. But, um, but, we, but, you know, we don't need that for our faith. We don't need philosophies. We just need scriptures. That's the first thing. Sola Scriptura. The next thing is sola, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, fide or fida or fide, whatever. It's faith alone. We're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ, right? There's, no, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's not based on works. It's based on faith. And then the next sola is sola gratia, which means grace alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone. Again, you can't earn your salvation. It's not based on merit. It's a free gift from Jesus Christ. And then the next one is solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And there are people today, and you know why this epistle, it was important in Jude's day because of all the the things, the, the false teachers that crept in. But you know, we're seeing that more and more in our generation too, especially as I believe we're approaching the end. There's going to be more and more false teachings. And you probably have talked with people that said, well, you know what? Yeah, Jesus, it's fine that you believe in Jesus, but there's many paths to God. Paul writes in Acts 4, actually Peter, I think, said in Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, think about this. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he's crying out to the Lord. You know, he's, he's just he's sweating drips of blood. And, and, and he's basically saying, Lord, God, if there's any, Father, is there any other way let this cup pass by me? And there was no other way. Could you imagine if there were other ways? Why would a father allow his son to be crucified for our sins if, if there was another path? There was no other way. Jesus had to die that death that for us. And so, solus Christus, Christ alone. And, you know, there's other aspects to that, because some people say, well, it's Jesus and, and they might have some, you know, a deliverance ministry, or, or Jesus and works, or Jesus and this. You know, it's fine that you have your faith in Jesus, but you also need this to be complete. No, you don't. You only need Jesus Christ. Paul says this to the Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul says even if an angel appears, now if an angel appears, I mean, that'd be amazing. You know, most times people see an angel, they fall down, they're, free, they're afraid, or in the Bible there's times they, they think it's God and they start worshiping the angel and the worship, angel says, whoa, 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 don't worship me, don't worship me, worship God. So an angel, I mean, you know, if you had an experience with an angel appear to you in, the, in, in your room, you know, at night, and, and he starts preaching this other gospel that's different from the Bible, man, let him be accursed. So false, te- false teachers were invading the church. Um, they were prophesied long ago. And like the parable of the terrors, they will not escape judgment. Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, 
that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I mean, these were God's chosen people. He saved them. He saved them out of bondage in Egypt. He brought them into the, into the wilderness. He was leading them into the promised land. But because of their unbelief, that whole generation, save a few men, Caleb and, and a couple others and Joshua, you know, the few men survived. But the rest of that generation, the Lord allowed to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They were judged for their unbelief. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The angels who do not keep their proper domain. What is that referring to? It's a very strange passage. Their proper domain, it, it means their principality or their rule or their, the, the sphere that they operate in. And he uses an example. He says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, to who? To these angels who left their proper domain. They, the, these men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they gave themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. And these men, these angels that did the same thing, Jude's relating to us. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, the strange flesh, it's referring to homosexuality. But in the case of these particular fallen angels, it's referring to humans. It's an interesting thing. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, before the flood, it's, it's very fascinating. It says there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So there's a this, there's this strange phenomenon that occurred, and there's a lot of debate on what are the sons of God and, and what are the daughters of men. But Peter even refers to something, I think, similar to this. In Second Peter 2, verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness uh, to be reserved for judgment. So it, it seems like there was this, you know, we're told in the Bible, in fact, Jesus said that angels are neither, they neither marry or given in marriage. So it's like, well, what do you mean about this, this daughters of, of men and, or excuse me, yeah, the daughters of men and the sons of God, how, they came in, they had children and these offspring were giants all i can think of and what i believe is there was some sort of demon possession beyond anything that we've experienced in in right now that we know of today and so jude's relating to this thing these 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 angels that that did this they were judged in other words he's getting to these men are going to be judged as well verse eight likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. It's interesting, why does Jude call these men dreamers? Is it like dreams are bad, or is it bad to have dreams? You know, when I have dreams, it's funny, like the other day, this is a dream that pastors have, okay? Um, the other day, I, I was going to get up early, and uh, it's usually, you know, I set my alarm for super early in the morning, and sometimes I get up, and sometimes I, you know, hit the snooze, and I, and I fall back asleep. And it's during that last 
hour or whatever of sleep, I get these really intense dreams. And the other day I had this really intense dream that I came to church and I had forgot to print out my notes. And I hadn't, wasn't prepared for a message. That's what I dream. But those are nightmares a pastor has. And I was like, oh, I'm without. So I'm like, in my dream, I went home because we only live three blocks away. I went home to my house, got the printer, started printing out my notes. People were waiting. I'm like, I'll be right back. I ran home. And uh, the printer, out of ink. Then the, then the paper jammed. And I'm like, ah. finally I get back. And it was like, I don't know, 1030, maybe 11 o'clock. And there's like three people sitting in here. Everybody else had left. I'm like, oh. Well, I woke up from that dream. This was Saturday morning. I woke up in my dream like I was bummed. I was so upset. I can't believe I did that. And like, I was dreaming. Yet it seemed so real. You know, and sometimes dreams can seem so real. And yet it is a dream. And so what, why I think he's calling these guys dreamers is they are imagining things as being real when in reality it is false. And there's people that, again, they base their, their faith, they base their doctrine on experiences or, or other things that, that it, it may seem real and true, but it's false. It's a dream. It's like a dream. It's, it's not true. It's not scriptural. He says, these dreamers who defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. They're compared, likewise, to the men of Sodom, and, uh, of, of Sodom and the fallen angels. And it's interesting, in the King James Version, they're called filthy dreamers. In other words, what they dream up leads to ungodly practices that defile the flesh. You know, we see that today, I think, in, in, in our culture, right? There's, there's Christians, and Christians who believe that sexual promiscuity is, is okay. It's okay. It's okay to be, you know, to be... You know, having sex before marriage. There's churches that teach that homosexuality is supported biblically. And that's big in our culture nowadays. See, they reject biblical and spiritual authority. And then he says they speak evil of dignitaries. The word dignitaries is doxa, and it's usually translated glory. Sometimes it's translated honor and praise. But twice in the Bible, here and in 2 Peter uh, 2, verse 10, it refers to dignitaries. It's, it's translated dignitaries. And because of verse 9, we put everything in context, verse 9 is probably referring to angelic be- beings, both fallen and, unfall- and unfallen. So verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now who's Michael? Michael is referred to as an archangel. In other words, he's a high-ranking angel. And if you look at him in scriptures, typically he's portrayed in spiritual battle in the Bible. And there's this, there's this story, there's this, there's this event where he contended with the devil, who's Lucifer. Lucifer is not Jesus' equal. It's not like the yin and the yang, you know, the good force of good and force of darkness. Lucifer was a created angel. He was a created being. But he was a high-ranking angel. In fact, it's possible that he could have been the highest-ranking angel. And so Michael and him, they're disputing about the body of Moses. What is that referring to? Well, we don't really know. You know, we do know that the Lord himself buried Moses' body in the wilderness. Actually, Mount Nebo, there in present-day Jordan. Um, 
we do know that that you know Moses didn't enter the promised land and, and the Lord killed him or took his life basically and buried him there. And so nobody knows where his body is is buried. And it's possible that the devil wanted to find out uh, find where the body of Moses was. Why would why would he want to do that? Well, Moses is so revered by the children of Israel, it's possible that he wanted to seduce the children of Israel into worshiping the body or the bones of Moses. Possible. Or, if you get a Revelation chapter 11, there's two witnesses that are going to come during the Great Tribulation. And some of the miracles they, they do, it's like, it could possibly be Moses is one of them. It could be Moses and Elijah. Possibly. We don't really know. But it could be possibly that if Moses is in fact one of these witnesses that's spoken of in Revelation um, 11, that maybe for some reason, you know, Lucifer's trying to prevent him from being one of the witnesses. that come. I, You know, we don't really know. But what we but what we're told here is Michael, who's a high ranking angel himself, did not rebuke Lucifer, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, it's interesting when I uh, first started walking with the Lord and and uh, we were going to a charismatic church at the time. And man, I tell you, you know, you, you kind of pick up what you're around and, and people were rebuking the devil left and right or rebuke Satan, I rebuke you. And so I started rebuking and then I started reading this. I'm like, you know what? Michael, the archangel didn't even rebuke the Lord or rebuke uh, Lucifer. He said the Lord rebuke you. So I'm like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I should just say the Lord rebuke you. So that's kind of what I do now. I don't, I don't walk around rebuking Satan, but I do say the Lord rebuke you. Well, what's the point of all this? The point of all this is these filthy dreamers, they despise and speak evil of things that are of higher spiritual rank than they are. In other words, they reject spiritual authority, be it the word of God, be it the things of God or God himself or spiritual beings. Verse 10, but these speak of evil, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So these men, they've gone in the way of Cain. What, what, what is that referring to? Well, if you recall the story of Cain and Abel, Abel by faith offered a lamb as a sacrifice to God. Cain instead offered by, he didn't offer by faith, but he offered um, fruit of the ground because he was a farmer. And at some point, you know, when, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and they clothed themselves with fig leaves, it's really fascinating. Jesus, or the Lord, gave them uh, skins to wear. And so up until that time, there had been no death in, in the Garden of Eden, there had been no death in creation. And so at some point, it's, it's possible that it could have been a lamb's skin and that, that God himself sacrificed a lamb to give them that example of sacrifice. This is, what, this is what God is pleased with, the sacrifice of an animal, blood, the shed blood of an innocent animal, preparing them for the Messiah, of course. And so the Bible, we're told by faith, Abel offered a lamb as a sacrifice to God, but Cain didn't do that. He offered fruit, from the ground. So he had gone in the way of Cain. In other words, Cain chose his own way of approaching God. Rather than what God required or what God wanted, he worshiped God on his own terms 
and not what God wanted. And, and that's what these men have done. They, they, they're worshiping God according to their own mind. You know, I'm going to worship God the way I want to worship God. It's not the way he requires it in scriptures. They've gone in the way of Cain. They've also run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Remember, Balaam was a prophet, and he was willing to curse God's people for profit, for money, in other words. And God, remember, prevented him from, from cursing the nation of Israel. But in the end of Balaam's story, he ended up showing Balak how he could seduce the children of Israel. He said, all you've got to do is just bring the women around, and they'll seduce the guys, and they'll, they'll intermarry, it'll happen. And, and so, um, and he, he must have got paid for it. He did it for profit. And uh, so Balaam, these guys, they run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. In other words, they're motivated not by glorifying God, but for the sake of their own profit. And it may not be money. It could be pleasure or even power. They just, it's to feed themselves, basically. And then he says they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now remember Korah was, it was a time when, when in, the, in the wilderness, God had appointed Aaron, Moses' brother, to be the high priest, the first high priest. And the, the, the Korah and other men, they came up and they said to, basically to Moses and to Aaron, they said, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. In other words, they reject the Lord's authority. They reject the authority of the Bible and the authority of spiritual leaders that God's appointed. Verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Spots in your love feast, that word spots, it, it's, it literally means a rock in the sea or a ledge or a reef. The love feast, it's re- referring to the agape feasts, the agape meals. It's, it's speaking of that love that we're to have for one another. It, so in other words, they not only corrupt themselves, but others can suffer shipwreck if they get involved with them. This is why Jude is warning the church about these guys. They're spots, they're hidden, they're, 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 they're there, but you've got to be careful, you've got to watch out for them. They're spots in your love feast. Then he says they're clouds without water, carried about by the winds. And you think about clouds, you know, billowy, swelling, you know, that's a symbol of pride to me, they're prideful, but there's no substance to them. And clouds, you know, they, you, you can't contain a cloud. It, it drifts in and out basically as the wind goes. And, you know, I've seen people that, that I've recognized that have been, they've been like these people that Jude's been warning about. And they're not submitted to a body of believers. They, they blow in and they blow out. You know, they, they basically, there's no, they're, they're not submitted to a local church. They're not submitted to any leadership in the church. They're doing their own thing. And they come in and they, they disrupt things and then they blow out again, just like a cloud does. They're laid on them trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. In other words, they're spiritually dead and there's no fruit in them. Now, we can't judge people's hearts, right? But we can look at their fruit. And these guys, you can see their fruit, man. There's, it's dead. It stinks. It's rotten. They're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom was reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I don't know if you've ever seen brown sea foam, 
It's like, it's gross, man. It's like, oof. It looks like chocolate milk, but it's disgusting. Well, these are like raging waves of the sea. He says, foaming up their own shame. And you think of a wave, it's untamed. Again, it's not submitted to any spiritual dis- discipline. Foaming up their own shame. It's just, whatever they do, it's just, it's just filthy. It's filthy. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And you know, think of a shooting star, you know, a comet or a shooting star. They've spun out of their orbit, whatever their orbit is, they're, especially a shooting star. I guess comets still follow an orbit. I'm not into astronomy that big. But, um, you know, shooting stars, it's, it's not submitted to an or- orbit anymore. It's going in its own direction. And it's bright. It's like, wow, you know, this is spectacular. But you know what? They burn out. They fade off into oblivion. And that's what these guys are. They come in there, they're not submitted, they're going their own direction, they're bright, you know, you look at, they've got some really fancy stuff that they're talking about, it's really impressive, you know, they might speak about, you know, these dreams they've had, or an angel revealed this to me, or whatever, but eventually they're going to flame out into darkness of judgment. Verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Possibly what Jude is referring to in verse 4 when he talks about, uh, you know, these guys who were long, uh, long ago were marked out for this condemnation, he's referring to this, where Enoch evidently prophesied about these men now it's interesting it's like we don't read that in in the book of genesis that enoch did this and it's possible that this may have been quoted from a book called the book of enoch enoch which is non-canon in other words it's not part of the accepted scripture and it's also like the story of michael contending with the devil that may have been quoted from another book called the assumption of moses neither one of those books are considered uh to be uh inspired literature but these events they must have actually taken place for jude to include that because jude's epistle is inspired you know paul did the same thing paul quoted from extra biblical sources but it didn't mean that what he said was not inspired and so it's kind of the same here with jude henry morris from the creation institute he's got an interesting point regarding verses 14 and uh and also verses uh the verses referring to uh, michael the archangel and lucifer he says this he says you know in jude's epistle he mentions adam he mentions moses enoch cain balaam korah michael the archangel satan you know, all of these people and events are what modern Bible critics nowadays, they say, Man, you, you, you can't believe in an actual creation, you know, there, there's actually a devil, you know, come on, you know. Modern critics, they, they poo-poo all this. And yet here in, in this one epistle, Jude mentions all these. Fascinating. Verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So we have another description about them, grumblers, murmurers. A grumbler is a murmur who uh, discontently complains, frequently about God. 
They're complainers. Uh, they complain, uh, to, to be a complainer, it's described here as complaining of one's lot. Querulous, which means complaining in a petulant or whining manner. Um, factious, discontented. So you kind of get the idea that they're, they're complaining about people, they're complaining about God, they're, they're, they're causing factions. Um, they're walking according to their own lusts and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain an advantage. In other words, they manipulate. So we have all these characteristics, grumbling, complaining, causing factions, manipulating. Uh, you know, <clears throat> if you're given, I don't want to offend people, but if you're given to grumbling, maybe you're, maybe you're a grumbler, you know, that you're, you're complaining frequently. I can't believe that, you know, this is going on or that's going on. I can't believe the worship's this or whatever. Uh, if you complain and if you're causing factions, and if you're manipulative in how you interact with other believers, it doesn't mean you're one of these people, okay? I'm, I'm going to say that right now. It doesn't mean that you're one of these ungodly false teachers. But you know what it does mean? It means you keep for every poor company. You're in bad company because these are the types of actions that the Bible says God hates. God hates factions. He hates it when people grumble and complain. So if you're given to these character traits, I'm not saying you're one of these ungodly men that God's going to judge, but, but you've got to repent because you're, you're, keeping, you're in bad company with these people that are ungodly, that will be judged. It's a very serious thing, causing divisions in the body and grumbling and complaining. Verse 17, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. So he says, remember, the word of God tells us there would be mockers in the last days. And especially as you and I see the last days approaching, there are mockers today. They mock the veracity of scriptures. In other words, the, the truth of scriptures. They, did God really say that? Which is fascinating because that's the very first thing that Satan said in the Garden of Eden when he was tempting Eve. Did, did God really say that? Satan uses the same lie. He hasn't changed tactics. And so there's mockers today that say, you know, you can't really believe that God actually said that. He didn't really mean that, did he, in scriptures? They also mock the historical accuracy of the biblical account. I mean, you don't actually believe in a literal seven days of creation. Come on, we've got evolution. There's these time periods. You don't actually believe in seven days of creation. You don't actually believe in, you know, a heaven and a hell, do you? And there's a real Satan out there. Come on. Or they mock the certainty of Christ's return. And the Bible talks about this. It says, where's the promise of his coming? All things continue as they always have. And there are people today that mock the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming, and boy, is he mad. You know, it's a joke, you know. <laughs> he says these are sensual persons. In other words, they're self-centered. They only please themselves, and they cause divisions. In other words, they don't strive for the unity of the Spirit. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not born again. All born-again believers have the Spirit. So these men, these people, they're not saved. Oh, they may talk the walk. They've slipped in through the side door. They're, they're part of the body of Christ. They're, not, they're, they're in the body. They're, they're in our fellowships, but they're not Christians. They're spiritually dead. So what are you and I to do? I mean, this is a warning that Jude's giving the church. 
well, we need to start a crusade, right? Let's, let's start purging all these false teachers. Again, go back to the parable of the tares and the wheat. God says, you know, no, no, you're going to just, their fruit will be evident. And at the harvest time, God's going to deal with them. So what are you and I to do? Well, first and foremost, I'm to focus on my own walk with the Lord. I need to focus on myself. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. If you look at verse 19, while these men, those certain men that are being prophesied, they tear apart and they tear down through divisions, what do I need to be doing? I not need to be tearing down, I need to be building up. The word in the Bible is referred to as edification, edifying. I need to be building up, not tearing myself, not tearing down. He says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And so what I need to do and focus on my life is I need to think, what is spiritually edifying for my faith? You know, Paul says, hey, all things are lawful. You, you know, as a Christian, you've got that Christian liberty, but not all things edify. What's going to edify? In my speech, you know, I, I can say a lot of cutting things. I can, I can cut down, I can complain, I can manipulate, but my speech should be edified. How do I build up others around me? So I, I, there's edification. I need to build myself. I need to be edified. What in my life is spiritual, spiritually edifying for my faith? I want to focus on those things that lead to edification. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add your faith virtue to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to build those things. I want to, I want to develop those in my life. I want to avoid those things that don't edify, but I want to build up those things that do edify. And while those certain men in verse 19 are devoid of the Holy Spirit, since they don't have the Spirit, what do I want to do? I want to be praying in the Holy Spirit. I want to be allowing the Holy Spirit to guide me in prayer and allowing Him to pray through me. I'm be praying in the Holy Spirit. And while those certain men in verse 19 are sensual, in other words, they're lovers of self, I want to love God. I want to keep myself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. You know, Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels us. I'm not compelled by God's but fear of judgment. I'm compelled by his love. When I look at all those things that he did for me, I look at my life and I say, man, he gave himself up for me. And, and, and what, you know, how do, why did he choose me? Why did he die on the cross for me? And I just get amazed by his love and overwhelmed by his love. And he loves me so much and gave himself for me. I want to live for him. I want to do those things that please him. I don't want to be pleasing myself. I want to be pleasing my Lord who died for me, gave his life for me. So first and foremost, I want to focus on my own walk with the Lord. Then, you know, we don't want to always be just looking at ourselves because we can kind of get kind of where that's all we do. We just introspective. I'm just thinking about myself. We also need to look outside beyond ourselves. We need to look out. 
I want to help my brother or sister in the Lord who might be falling for some of these false teachers or their false teachings. Verse 22. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. I need to make a distinction between false teachers and those who have fallen for their lies. I need to have compassion on those who have been tricked by the enemy, who have fallen. I don't judge them. I, wanna, I need to have compassion on them. I'm not speaking of those false teachers. I'm speaking of those that are falling, that have fallen for their, for their lies. I need to love them enough to be willing to do something about it, to approach them in love and to, to, to come alongside them and, and disciple them. But I need to save with fear. It says with fear. Being careful not to defile my own flesh in the process. What is that referring to? Well, as a man, I'm not going to disciple a woman that's, you know, struggling, right? Um, why? Because I got to be careful not to defile my own flesh. You know, they're, they're, I, I'm setting myself up for, for, for disaster if I do that. I'm not going to counsel a woman. As a man, I'm not going to do that. If I have a certain weakness, I'm not going to try to disciple someone with that exact same weakness. Why? Because I may fall too. I may, I may fall right in with them into that sin. So I need, to, I need to be careful not to defile the flesh. I need, to be, I need to save with fear. So first and foremost, we need to focus on my own walk with, with the Lord. Then I need to look around and I need to help my brother or sister in the Lord who may be falling for those false teachers and false teachings. And then finally, finally, I want to keep my eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Focus on the Lord. So I, I focus, first of all, I, I need to look inward. You know, I need to be building up my faith. I need to be doing things that are edifying. And then I need to look around. Is there a brother or sister that, that really needs to somebody to come alongside them, to disciple them, to help them? And then finally, I need to look to the Lord. I need to look up at the Lord. Because he alone, he alone is the one who's able to keep my feet from slipping. He alone is the one who presents you and I as a spotless bride. It's, it's the work that he does in us. He alone is my Savior, our Savior. There's no one and nothing else. He alone is wise. You know, I don't need to look for wisdom from any other source. I, didn't, I don't need to, go, need to go to secular people. I don't need to go to books. I need to look to him for wisdom. I need to go to him for wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So he alone is wise. And then finally, he alone is worthy of my praise and worship. And that's actually the fifth of the five solas of the Reformation. Soli Dea Gloria. <laughs> I'm terrible with the Latin. But Soli, whatever, Deo Gloria, to, to the glory of God alone. See, we live for the glory of God alone. Why don't you stand up? So, you know, as Jude, you guys can come on up. This is the epistle that Jude needed to write. 
And he wrote it because he saw these false teachers and these false teachings coming into the church. And it was damaging the church and it was causing so much problems. And, and as we're approaching the end days, I really believe we're close. We're going to see more and more of that. And so, so this is epistle as, as applicable to us. As, in fact, it's probably even more applicable to us today in this day and age than it was even in Jude's day. So I want to encourage you this morning. You know, like I said, you don't need anything but scriptures. You need scriptures. There is no one else who can save. You know, we look at those things of the Reformation. I mean, that's basically... It's funny, I got a, a phone call from someone asking us if, if we were going to do a, a Reformation service. And I'm like, well, you know what? I haven't actually called them back yet, but I'm like, we're doing it. We're, we're doing the spirit of the Reformation is basically teaching from scriptures and having our faith in Christ alone. And, and that's what we're doing. We're, we're living out what the Reformation was all about. But if you're here this morning... And maybe, maybe I've stepped on a few toes. Maybe you've been falling for some false teachings or you've gone to other sources. I want to encourage you to come back to the Lord. Come back to the Word of God because that's where you're going to grow. That's where you're going to, that's where you're going to find that healing and that's where you're going to find that wisdom is by going to the Lord. So let's pray and then we'll do a couple worship songs. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning and Lord, for the reminder, and it's, it's a serious, Lord, it, was, it wasn't a funny teaching, it was a serious teaching, Lord, but it's a serious subject. And Father, I thank you that you've given us your word, and that we can rely on your word, we can rely on the truthfulness and the historic, historical accuracy of your word. And Lord, all of these things that have been told, Lord, we know they're true and we believe them, and we thank you for that, Lord God. Lord, this morning I just want to lift up each and every person here, Lord, I pray if there's anybody who's struggling in an area with their, with their life, maybe they've fallen for some false teachings, or, or Lord, maybe they're just struggling in their walk this morning. I pray that, Lord, that they might be encouraged to turn back to you this morning. So we thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.